Let's take our Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We are finishing the last of a five-part series that we began at the 1st of February on the church and certainly have not exhausted everything related to the church, but really just talking and beginning a conversation of what what is the church uh, generally and what is God's purposes for this church. And we looked at uh, today, will be the third, but we looked at uh, two weeks, uh, we began uh, three words that really are just essential basic values of what uh, it means to be all in to Grace Church. This morning, we're going to finish by this word, and it's the word commit, the word commit. And uh, I did something with the little arrows, a little, I put the cross in between those arrows because this speaks of our commitment to the Great Commission. We gather together to glorify God through our commitment and obedience. Notice that those words are important. It's not just enough to say, oh, yeah, nobody here is going to argue and say, are you for or, or against the great commission of Jesus to go into all the world? Uh, I'm against that. No, you're not against that. You're for it. We're committed to it. But putting uh, action to that commitment is something entirely different, right? And so we gather together to glorify God through our commitment and obedience to the great commission of of Jesus. And so this morning we're going to talk about what that is and what that looks like. So to be all in as part of this body, and I would venture to say of any healthy growing church, you got to show up. You got to be intentional in your relationships and you've got to be committed to what's important to Jesus and why we're here. We're not here just to establish an outpost of the VFW hall. We're not here to uh, establish ourselves as a nice little club where we all meet and get along and, and have some snacks when we come in and, and hear an inspirational talk. No, we are here to be connected ultimately to the mission of what Jesus is committed to and what he gave his life to do, and that involves the Great Commission. Why are we here? What is our purpose? Jesus said as a reminder, and these are going to be uh, in your Bible that you'll need to look at, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. Literally, as you are going, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We commit to the Great Commission. Go, therefore. That's the primary function of followers of Jesus Christ. Uh, Bishop J.C. Ryle, a saint who lived in the 19th century, made the statement, it is the height of selfishness for the Christian to be content to going to heaven alone. Think about that. That what God has done for us is not meant for us just to keep and maintain But God has designed... Now, God could have done a lot of different things. He could have written scriptures in the sky. He could have written scriptures in in various uh, parts of the earth. And archaeologists, when they digged it up, 
they would see, you know, the, the, uh, you know, a chapter from Jeremiah there. And they'd say, oh, there's evidence there's a God. And, and so how can we find him? No, what has God done? He is, re- he is using us, redeemed, sinful, rebellious people. And he says, I want you to be my ambassadors to go into the world and tell them about me. Tell them what it means to be a follower of me. Tell them what I have done in bridging and reconciling themselves to my Father through the cross. So if Grace Church is going to be everything that God has desires us to be, one of the essential components that we must be committed to and renewing that commitment that must be at our heart and understanding why we're here on this piece of earth is to be committed to this task and this mission of Christ and sharing the good news. Now, immediately, if you're like me, immediately you, you just you immediately rack your head and think, oh, no, 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 we're not going to be a guilt trip on, on here. We got, you know, Jim talked a little more about giving, and now the double punch, sharing the gospel. Oh, my goodness, we're going to really feel guilty when we come out of here. No, that's... But we should feel somewhat convicted, right? There's a difference. We should feel a conviction of, of and I don't believe there's a person here and me at the front of the line that's saying, you know what, I, I can step it up a little bit. There's, there, I can be more committed, intentional. Let's put it that way. I can be more intentional in this part of what it means to be a part of his church on this earth. I can step it up. But sometimes we don't do it. Sometimes we don't do it because to share the gospel. When I say share the gospel, don't immediately think that there's some formula. Don't think that, oh, there's just one way. I mean, there's obviously truth that you have to talk about. You know, sometimes we'll use the statement, and I know what people mean by it, but it's, it's kind of a... We say, well, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. Well, that sounds cute and funny and nice, and I know what we mean by that, meaning that faith without works is dead, that, you know, show our example of our life. But here, here's the deal, guys. The gospel involves words. It involves content. That's why God in his providence gave us a book with words in it. In Acts chapter 2, when the conviction of the Holy Spirit fell on that day of Pentecost, and Peter stood up to speak words connecting the prophecy of Joel to what God was doing at that moment in the, in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon all flesh. And individuals said in chapter 2 they were cut to the heart. By what? By words that the Holy Spirit was empowering or had empowered, being used for, for, by, uh, by frail, fallen vessels. And what did they ask? They asked him, what must we do? You know, what do we must do? And he said, repent and be baptized and be filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, they were responding to words and content. And so that's incumbent upon us to understand what Scripture teaches, what Scripture, how to lead someone to Christ. Doesn't, and I have, I have gone through in my life, I have gone through at least four different uh, evangelism training type of uh, uh, teachings. And they're all good. They're all wonderful. And they all give you some structure of how to have a conversation, how to initiate a conversation. One of the best, and I'll quote something a little later that uh, I, I, hope, I haven't figured out when we'll do it, maybe in the summer, that my favorite is a, t- is a series called Sharing Jesus Without Fear by William Fay. 
You may have heard it. Anybody ever heard of that, that series called Sharing Jesus Without Fear? It, it's, it, it's really good because it, the essential is that he says this is a little bit off of what uh, Henry Blackaby in Experiencing God, one of his key quotes. Anybody remember we've taught Henry, uh, Experiencing God here in different times and different uh, uh, seasons? And it essentially is find out where God is moving and get in on that. That's real complicated, isn't it? So in sharing Jesus without fear, takes it this way. Find out who God is working in, right? And let the Holy Spirit direct that conversation. But the whole point of it is, is to be intentional in my life, to realize that uh, my life, that people put in my path, are there because God has allowed them to be in my path. Now, it may not be always, you know, when you're at the bank teller and you got four cars behind you that you want to get into an in-depth conversation on the gospel with the person, you know, now, you know, when they're on a camera or they're somewhere off at another part of the building. That may not always... There you go. See, hey, let me tell you something. Those are good sounds in a church, Right? A church that doesn't have children making a lot of noise is usually probably a dying church. Hello? All right? So you use wisdom and all. We, we understand. But sometimes it's not, in our day, it's not politically correct to share the gospel because by very nature of the gospel that Jesus taught, he's, he made these statements that are very politically incorrect. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way, not a way. I am the truth, not a truth. The life. Anyone, he would say, that wants to know God must come through me in John 6. That's not, you know, that doesn't fit with our culture. So we kind of, you know, we get a little nervous of that. A part of that is kind of the philosophy, the mindset of our culture. And sometimes you'll hear people use words like postmodern. You may not know what that is, but it doesn't matter. You know this, postmodern is just a term people that evaluate culture, and it essentially is that we are in a season and have been for quite some time where the acceptability of what we would call absolute truth, there is a God who may, you know, in those things, that there is a body of truth. Nobody, like, no, there is no absolute truth. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. We all just kind of have this collective hodgepodge so don't put, your, don't put your truth, whatever you, don't put that on me. I don't want to hear it because that may be good for you, but that's not the way I'm going. And so that's not truth for me. And so we live in that culture in which for somebody to talk about that there is one way and that there is a God and there is a specific God that we worship doesn't quite fit in to... Uh, our world really never has. And then fear. How many of you love rejection? Well, let's all raise your hand. We love rejection. Give me rejection. No, no, no. If you want to experience rejection, just start opening your mouth and talking about your faith. Start talking about the gospel. Start sharing of about the hope that has changed your life. And you might have some people that are receptive, right? Because the Holy Spirit, you know, is work, and then you'll have other people that say, "I don't want to hear that." You Christians, you're, you know, and they'll just kind of go off on this diatribe, and you're like, "Never opening my mouth again," right? 
So there's all sorts of reasons, but we could have all sorts of excuses. But here's what we're, we need to be reminded of is that as a follower of Christ, as a disciple of Christ, as one who has embraced Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, you cannot in any way come away from reading Jesus in the Gospels and the New Testament, the fuller, uh, the, any part of that, and not come away with this basic understanding and conviction is that God has put me here in order to be a mouthpiece of his good news. And it is good news. It is good news. The grace is amazing. The problem is we get distracted and it doesn't seem as amazing as it did a while back. But it is amazing grace. It is profound grace, as Newton would say, the writer of that wonderful hymn, that God would save a wretch, he says. And you know, he was a former slave trader and certainly understood the darkness of his heart. Jesus said in Matthew 24, in this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a witness to all the nations, and then the end shall come. This gospel will be preached, see, because Jesus is the sovereign authority over all of creation. He says this gospel will be preached. He's not just, he, the, the gospel is not a hope so. Well, I hope people get saved. I hope that they're obedient. No, his followers that are committed and are his, those that he, that Ephesians 1 says that he has chosen before the foundation of the earth, this gospel will be preached. John 20, 21, Jesus ascend, before Jesus ascended to the Father, he commissioned all of those who would follow him by telling them, as the Father has sent me, so I, what? Send you. Sending. Acts 1.8. Jesus promises us that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. And so that's, that's clear just by those uh, few verses that we read. And, and when we look at the early church and see how God birthed this early church, that when the power of the Holy Spirit began to empower those individuals, the first thing they began to do, Peter, remember Peter, Acts 2? I mean, this is a guy who denied Jesus three times, and he, was, he, he wasn't sure. There were times he would understand Jesus, and there was other times he didn't quite know if he figured it, you know, he didn't quite get it right, and he counseled Jesus about not going to the cross, and Jesus recalled him, get behind me, what, Satan? How would you like to have that? No, you wouldn't. None of us would. I mean, so he's kind of all over, but yet something happened. In Acts chapter 2, we see a man staying there full of the Holy Spirit, boldly proclaiming the word of the Lord and proclaiming Jesus, and we see that that began, the early church began to take hold, and the gospel, by the time we get down to the time when they started killing off Christians around chapter, what, 6 or so, 7, we see the church grown to maybe 15, 20,000 people, all from these 11 guys, not counting Judas, these 11 guys, but what, what, what made the difference? They were empowered by the Holy Spirit, and they obeyed what Jesus said to start in Jerusalem and just began to be used for his purposes and his mission. So looking at, in your Bibles, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we want to focus on this word, which is commit, commit. Maybe we could put that slide back up there. Uh, is that we are committed to the Great Commission. Now, in 2 Corinthians 5, 
I want you just, uh, we're going to primarily look at verse 11 and just, just make some observations real quick. But it, this is kind of important to kind of get a uh, context of, before we come to chapter, or, or verse, uh, down at uh, verse 11, uh, or rather verse uh, 15, 16 down in there, uh, just to kind of set it up a little bit of the context. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul begins uh, his train of thought, his, his teaching. Sometimes we pull a verse out and we're like, well, let's try to understand what this means. So it's always important to look at what is uh, before it and what's after it to get the context, okay? So Paul is, it begins chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians by talking about uh, that, uh, that uh, of who we are in Christ and this relationship based upon the resurrection, and he talks about uh, that, uh, uh, that we desire naturally because Jesus is resurrection and looking for the future resurrection that we will be free from the temptations and pain, and we perfect, we, we're waiting perfectly for uh, God's retur- uh, returning and, and calling us home, and, and uh, he desires that uh, the Holy Spirit who is in us has been given to us as a pledge. And so down to verse 6, he says, so we are always of good courage, he says. We are cur- encouraged. We are confident in this faith. And we don't walk by sight. We walk by uh, 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 the, want this desire of wanting to be with Christ is our ambition. Look what he says, verse 6. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. That's us right now. For we walk by faith and not by what? Sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would naturally rather be away from the body and be at home with the Lord. That's, that's our goal. That's, the, that's, a, that's a wonderful place. No cancer, no disease, no depression. I mean, that's a wonderful place to be. Verse 9, so whether, but he's saying, but look, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim. We make it our goal to do what? To please him. That's what a follower of Jesus wants to do. We want to please him. Now, don't hear we want to earn his favor. That's not what this is saying. We couldn't do anything to earn his favor. We couldn't do anything to earn his grace. That, that, that's, so these are believers who are under the, are in the, the covenant of Christ and enjoying the forgiveness of the cross. But, but at the same time, now that we are in that, now we have this new relationship, we want to please him. For we must, verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, we read that, and the reason it's important to kind of put that in context, because you read that, you're like, oh, no. Man, I mean, if I blow this witnessing thing, or, 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 or oh, I mean, that maybe this salvation isn't secure. That's not what he's talking about. He is not talking about the judgment seat of Christ for believers to judge sin, the context and what he's talking about is a judgment that has to do with the rewards of the believer. Now, that's an entirely separate subject. But what you need to make sure you understand is he is not talking about, oh, wait a minute, I thought we were saved by grace, but then it says we're going to come before him and then he's going to weigh the good and the bad. That is not what he's talking about. This has nothing to do with a judgment unto salvation. We have been forgiven in Christ once and for all in him, Ephesians 1, 7 says, in him, we have present reality, redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, 
or sins according to the riches of his grace. That is a present reality that we are secure in right now. So going back, what is he talking about, this judgment seat? The word uh, seat is the word bema. Sometimes you'll read about the bema, B-E-M-A, seat of Christ. And in the, uh, in the Greek or the Roman world, that was a place in which was a platform by which they gave uh, trophies or medallions or, or medals to Olympic or athlete runners. And so in Corinth, they're probably more, because of its size, there would have been a bema seat in the natural. And so Paul's just playing off of that and say, look, there is going to be a time in the future for Christians and believers that Christ will give rewards for our actions of what we did as believers representing him here on earth. I like what R.C. Sproul always says. He says, right now counts forever. But here's what I want us to look at and zero in on is verse 11 and 21. Now, the reason that verse 10 is important about the judgment seat of Christ is because what he's going to go on to say in verses 11 and 21 is, is this is that our actions, our obedience is recognizing that there is a day that Jesus, as believers, as Christians, will hold us accountable for what we did with the investment that he made. Remember the parable of the, of the talents? Well, I can't be, I'm not going to be judged based on what God gave Sean. And he's not going to be judged based on what God has given me. But each one will be judged. We don't like that word. Oh, I don't want to hear that word. That's, that's right there. Take it out of the Bible if you don't like it. It's right there. But hear the word that I will be held accountable, not for salvation. Jesus is talking about his people, his flock, and that these rewards or these crowns of that earthly bema where they handed out those crowns to successful athletes, he's saying there is coming a day in which we will appear before the Bema, seat of Christ, and he will dispense crowns and rewards based on our action and activity here right now. Listen, I have no fantasy about being, figuratively speaking, because I don't know how it all is going to work, that somehow I'm going to get more crowns than my brother martyr who has been killed and murdered for the faith in North Korea and has been a faithful witness. I'm going to be way, way in the back because there's going to be lots of lots of brothers and sisters who expended their life and used their life as a witness, as a light for the gospel that I was not called upon. Right? Everybody with me? Because you know I preach longer if you get quiet. Okay, I'm just telling you. What he's saying here, and trust me, the back end's going to go faster. But what he's saying here that's important in context, Paul is saying this accountability that I have before my Lord is a motivation. It's part of the motivation of why I do what I do. Because I know that there is a day of accountability. There is a day of, of judgment. There's a day of, of a recognition of rewards of, of my activity. That what I'm doing now has eternal effect. Okay? 
And Paul is trying to steer our attention so that we begin to, to, to get away from just a, over, uh, an obsession and a living of the temporal instead of living for that which is eternal. Here's one thing that is a 100% fact. Everyone in this room will one day die. Now, we don't want to hear that. We don't want to think that. There's a brother who used to attend here. Only a few of you probably remember him a year ago. We prayed for him. He had stage 4 lung cancer on a Wednesday before he left for Oklahoma, drove out there to be with family. I remember he was here on a Wednesday, and we laid hands on him. Do you remember that? His name was Bob. I remember that Wednesday night? And I looked it up on my phone. That was March 16th on a Wednesday last year. And periodically, we would communicate in text. And, uh, you know, how are you doing? Whatever. And uh, he, the last text I got from him was Christmas. And he just said, Merry Christmas, Jesus' birthday, you know, just... And um, I text him back, and then maybe about, a, uh, I don't know, maybe first part of February, I text him, hey, Bob, how you doing? How's it going? Because I knew several months back the doctor had given him three, a few months to live. Didn't hear anything back. That wasn't always unusual. Sometimes there'd be a little delay, and then I just, you know, when I didn't get anything back, I just, oh, no, I, don't, I, don't, I want to hear from him. So I texted him again and still didn't hear anything. And then I called his number. And said so the number had been disconnected. And, uh, and I tried to rack my brain and remember where he went in Grove, Oklahoma. And I still had an old text on here. And I found his obituary from January 21st. And uh, he loved the Lord. He loved Jesus. But I left that on here. I, I just couldn't take his number out of my phone. <laughs> I don't even, and, but I did. I changed where it said his name, last name, and then, you know, business or whatever. I just put in heaven. And just left it there. And last few days, it was just a very tangible reality that time's short, guys. There is a reality of heaven. And Jesus even affirmed a reality of hell. And the difference in our lives of going one to another is our relationship to our Savior and our acceptance of His gospel and His truth. That's the difference. And he has commissioned us to be the mouthpiece and be the means that this message is spread. Imagine sitting with Jesus, those 11 guys, and they're wanting to know, hey, in, chapter, in Acts 1, is it this time you're going to bring in the kingdom? In other words, at this time you're going to throw all the bums out and bring in the kingdom of God? They were, you know, I mean, they were excited about that. And he said, it's not for you to know the day, that time, or the hour. Those things are in the Father's hands. Okay? But you, you're going to receive power. Hey, we like power, right? We're into power, right? But you're going to receive power, and then when the Holy Spirit has come up on you, you're going to take this gospel, you're going to start out locally, you're going to be spread out into Polk County, and then you're going to go to Florida, and then it'll go national, and before long, through you and what the Spirit of God is going to do through you 11 men... This gospel will be preached throughout the earth. I'd look at him like, oh my, what in the world are we doing now? That's impossible. Jesus designed it that way, right? And it hasn't changed. Until he returns, it has not changed. 
So Paul says, I want you to be focused on that which is of eternal value instead of being consumed about all the junk that's going on here because there is a day of accountability. I'm going to give you in verse, in verse 11 through 21, and I'm going to go through these real fast, four reasons that we, by being all in, we commit and should commit and renew our commit, commitment to sharing the gospel of Jesus with others. Number one is because, verse 11, Paul reminded us that we live in the presence of God. We live in and under the presence of God. Verse 11, he said, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Now, sometimes that word fear trips us up. But, but think of it this way, that fear is, a, is an awe, is a respect, is a sense of God who is God. He is not God of a great parking place at Coles. We trivialize God over so much, you know, and, and the Bible, one of the commandments is do not take the Lord's name in vain. I don't think that has anything to do with cussing, even though it might apply. Cussing. See, I'm from the South. Do not apply God's name in an empty way. Vain. Empty. He is the ruler. He is the sovereign. We live under the presence of God, but by virtue of the Spirit, we live in His presence. Jesus said when He gave the commission, He said, I will never leave you. What? I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to be right with you. My Spirit, my presence is going to be right with you. So Paul was conscious of the presence of Christ. And so when we talk about a renewed commitment of sharing our faith, it's not something that we do out of some guilt-driven duty. It is something we do because we have this understanding of who God is, what Christ has done, and we have a little bit of a glimpse of this eternity. And that once we are there, we're there. Once that last breath is drawn, that's it. Doesn't matter what Shirley MacLaine thinks, that we're going to come back as Napoleon or whatever, you know? The Bible says it's appointed unto mankind, man, once to die and thereafter the judgment. So Paul says what motivates me is knowing that God is with me and that I'm in the presence of God And that because of my love and his love for me, and because of this consciousness of of him around me and with me, that motivates me that my life is not my own. It belongs to him. Secondly, in verse 14, we commit to sharing the gospel of Jesus with others because we are controlled and compelled by the love of Christ. Look at verse 14. Paul says, for the love of Christ. We sing about the love of Christ today. Sometimes we just need to hear, some of you just need to hear, some of me, some, I need to hear, God loves me. You might have grown up where a parent or somebody significant in authority of your life never could say those three words, I love you. Well, you know I love you. Yeah, I love you. That's why I work so hard. We want to hear, I love you. Right? 
Oh, quit acting so spiritual. We want to hear, I love you, right? We want to hear a human being. That's the reason God sent Jesus in the flesh or a human being as a human being to represent him, to demonstrate his love for us. And not only demonstrate with his life, but gave his life. Paul says it is this love of Christ. It is the, it's not guilt. It's not, I mean, he just said, I know I'm going to be held. I know I'm under accountability and I know God is with me, but it's, it's the love of Christ that is controlling me. It's the love of God that's, that's controlling me. That word control, listen to this. That word control carries with it in the Greek the idea of pushing on every side or constraining. Let me give you an example. In Luke 8, 45, do you remember when Jesus is walking through this massive crowd and a woman reaches out to, what? Touch the hem of his garment. I feel like singing right now. I know there's a song with that, but I couldn't remember it. She touches him and she had a, uh, a hemorrhage and he asked, who is the one who touched me? And Peter said, <laughs> like just about 8,000 people around us. I mean, that's the message version. He said, what do you mean? The, the, the crowd, listen to what he says. Master, the multitudes are crowding and pressing upon you. That's the word, pressing. The word pressing means what Paul is saying. I, for the love of Christ, it presses me. It pressures me. Tell people that one has died for all, and therefore all have died because of what Christ has done. Do we have that same compelling, controlling desire when it talks about being committed to sharing this gospel? And see what is wrapped all in that, Paul's love was such a compelling force in his life. Remember, this is a guy who we know on record by his own testimony was responsible for the deaths of Christians. The Bible tells us in uh, Acts chapter 6 at the stoning of Stephen that a young man by the name of Saul of Tarsus, you know what his job was? And, and really, I, I believe he certainly was responsible for that whole event in the murder of Stephen, the first Christian martyr of the church. It says that he was holding the coats, the cloaks, of those who did the killing. He wanted to make sure their Gucci's and Ralph Lauren Jack, they didn't get dirty because they had some killing to do. In Galatians 1, he says, you know my testimony of how I tried, I love that, how I tried to destroy the church of God. This, this is a guy by his own testimony. He talks about dragging women and children and families. Why? Because he thought his path, just like those guys in those airliners that plunged into the Twin Towers in New York, you know, he was as convinced as they were that he was on a mission from God. And yet he says... It's the love of Christ. He knew the love of Christ. He understood the grace of Christ. Compassion, and it's because of that compassion. Guys, I pray 
for my own self that we have a, 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 that I have more compassion and love for those who do not know Jesus. I'm not happy with my compassion meter right now. Because, you know, we get into the steel, we're busy, it's them, it's us, whatever. No, that person that you may just say, ah, you know, just they're... Well, they're always at that street corner. Why don't they get a job? Let me tell you something, that's somebody's son. That's somebody's daughter. That's somebody that maybe had some birthday cakes made for them. I believe most every one of them, always exceptions. But if none of that happened, guess what? God made them. God made them. What does that mean to me? That means they are of infinite worth. That means they are just as much a recipient of this grace as me. Who do I think I am? Right? And we get kind of that mentality third we commit to sharing the gospel of jesus with others because this is verse 15 because as his followers we are no longer living for ourselves but we are living for him who died for us and rose on our behalf what does he say verse 14 the love of christ controls us compels us pushes us verse 15 And he died for all, that those who live might no longer, what, live for themselves. We're really good at that. We're professional living for ourselves. But Christ has called us. He would say things like, take up your cross and follow me. Now, that didn't mean put on a nice little gold cross that you got at K Jewelers. You know, we got a nice little cross. You know, the cross... For these folks, was an emblem of death. It'd be as crazy as you wearing a little gold uh, electric chair around your neck. Imagine coming in. Here, honey, I got you something for Valentine's Day. Special, because I want you to know how special you are. And let me just put it around your neck. What is it? It's a gold electric chair, and there's a diamond for every year we've been married. Isn't that neat? The cross was where people were nailed and left out in the out parts of the city for their flesh to rot. They, they, probably, they usually were not, uh, did not die immediately. In many cases, they bled to death and the elements of the weather, they died, and then the birds had at them. It was not a pretty thing. That's why the early church, more their symbol was a fish. Jesus said, I'll make you fishers of men. That was their symbol of identity. But Jesus said, when he makes statements, said, if you want to follow me, take up your cross and follow me. That means what Paul would write, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who, there it is again, who loved me and gave himself for me. The last is we commit to sharing the gospel of Jesus with others because, and here's just such an amazing thing, God has assigned us the job of helping others make peace with him. He's assigned that role, that job to us. Uh, I won't take time to look back, but if you want to read in context, look back to chapter 3, and he talks about that this role is built upon being ministers of the new covenant. 
These aren't some abstract ideas. They're all part of Paul's thinking. And when you go back to chapter 3, he says, he says, and you are letters, and you are, uh, he said, that the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of your human hearts, that God has written his, by his spirit, his word upon your hearts. That's language that goes back to Jeremiah 31, 31. Where God promises and foretells about that he will make a new covenant with his people. Paul writes that just a few chapters back. And he says in verse, uh, verse 4, our confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. You say, well, I can't tell anybody about Jesus. Look at verse 6. Who made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant. He's writing to believers, and my goodness, he's not writing just to any believers. He's writing to the believers at Corinth. And if you know anything about Corinth, that's pretty astounding. And yet, greater the display of grace in those who are the greater of least deserving of that grace. That's why Paul could say, and I'm would probably have an arm wrestling with Paul because he says he's the chief sinner of sinner. Say, no, Paul, I'm the chief sinner. And when Jesus saved me, I had a dark heart. And I was a rebel. And there was nothing good in me that Jesus found worthy. But he loved me. Why? Because he chose to do that. Same with you. Jesus is our peace. Verse 21, he says, He's made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That's the gospel. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He took the punishment of our sins. Paul would write in Ephesians 2, For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh, in his body, the dividing wall of hostility. What has Jesus done? He has made, he has given us the ministry, he says, in verse 18, all this is from God, back in 2 Corinthians 5, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us, say gave us, say gave me, the ministry of reconciliation, verse 20, therefore we are his ambassadors, what does an ambassador do? He represents the kingdom and the king that God making his appeal through us. He says, we implore you on behalf of Christ. The same Paul that wrote Romans 8 and 9 and talked about being chosen and known before the foundation of the world. This is a man who says, we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled for God. Listen, if our theology dampens our commitment to the Great Commission, we've got a bad theology. If our theology says, well, you know what? Hey, it's all been fixed. You God? Huh? You, you know who has got a little mar- the E on their head that tells us who's in and who's out? You got more knowledge than Paul did. The Bible teaches, no. The same Paul says, we implore you. We could say, beg you. Ah, you know, if God wants them to be saved, they'll be saved. That's a bad theology. That's bad teaching. That's, that's not even biblical teaching. And certainly is not anything that the Apostle Paul would embrace. 
There is a God side. He knows everything. Does God know everything? Is there anything God doesn't know? No, he knows everything. Do we know everything? No. Some of you may have heard this, but it came to my mind. I'm going to close with just reading this little story that I think illustrates something of how we can fall into this trap as a church and messages like this are not meant to go and do better even though hopefully we become more motivated to be obedient to what was important to what Jesus said. And hear me, there's multiple ways of how we do this. The point is, am I doing, am I using my gifts, am I using who I am, Am I, do, am, I, am I diligent in this? Am I being, wherever I am and whatever opportunity I, I, I'm in, am I doing what God has commissioned me to do to be a light for the gospel? And it's this little story that says about this group that existed that called themselves fishermen. And there were many fish in the waters all around this group. And in fact, the whole area was surrounded by streams and lakes filled with fish, and the fish were hungry. Week after week, month after month, and year after year, those who called themselves fishermen met in meetings and talked about their call to fish, the abundance of fish, and how they might go about fishing. Year after year, they carefully defined what fishing means and defended fishing as an occupation and declared that fishing is always to be the primary task of fishermen. Continually, they searched for new and better methods of fishing and for new and better definitions of fishing. They created witty slogans and displayed them on big, beautiful banners. These fishermen built large, beautiful buildings and called them fishing headquarters. The plea was that everyone should be a fisherman and every fisherman should fish. But there's one thing they didn't do. They didn't fish. (laughs) In addition to meeting regularly, they organized a board to send out fishermen to other places where there were much more fish than what they had. The board hired staffs and appointed committees and held many meetings to define fishing, to defend fishing, and to decide what new streams should be thought about. But the staff and the committee members did not fish. Large, elaborate, and expensive training centers were built whose original and primary purpose was to teach fishermen how to fish. Over the years, courses were offered on the needs of fish, the nature of fish, where to find fish, the psychological reactions of fish, and how to approach and feed fish without scaring them away. Those who taught had doctorates in fishology, but the teachers, they never fished. They only taught fishing. Year after year, after tedious training, many were graduated and were actually given fishing licenses. They were sent to do full-time fishing, some distant waters, which were filled with fish. Many who felt the call to be fishermen responded to such call. They were committed to this fish. But like the fishermen back home, they actually never fished. They engaged in all kinds of other occupations. Some felt their job was to relate to fish in a good way so that the fish would know the difference between good and bad fishermen. Others felt that simply letting the fish know they were nice and land-loving neighbors and how loving and kind 
they were was enough. Now, it's true that many of the fishermen sacrificed and put up with all kinds of difficulties. Some lived near the water and bore the smell of dead fish every day. They received the ridicule of some who made fun of their fishermen's club and the fact that they never that they claimed to be fishermen, yet never fished. Imagine how hurt and offended they were when one day a person came into their midst and actually suggested that those who don't fish weren't really fishermen. No matter how much they claimed to be, yet it just didn't sound correct. Is a person a fisherman if year after year they never fish? You get the idea. I mentioned to you William Fay, and I'm going to close with this. He wrote the series and teaching series called Sharing Jesus Without Fear. And listen to what he writes. He says, God provides the opportunity to witness, and he promises his power to help us. Yet we simply say no because of fear. But to say no to God for any reason is a sin. To give in to any of these fears is to practice the sin of silence. But, he says, you don't have to be afraid. Resist the temptation to believe your weaknesses are unchangeable. In prayer, and I would exhort all of this, me at the front of the list, honestly share with God your fears of witnessing in prayer. Focus your heart on the strength that matters, the presence of God and the assurance of his power. It is not your strengths that will bring you the power to share Jesus with a lost person. It is your dependence on his power. Successful witnessing is about obedience and dependence. Your greatest strength, our greatest strength, is our willingness to trust God as your partner. God is my partner in guiding a unbelieving brother or sister, parent, son or daughter, colleague at work, stranger to know God's saving grace. 